Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there. If you look out long term, there's plenty of projects that weren't going to happen pre-IRA that are now capable of happening. You've got people that are investing more and more money into the space that weren't doing it before. It's all very positive. But we see a number of opportunities that are still kind of frozen because costs need to come down. Praise for the solar industry's meteoric growth often shines on developers and their multi-gigawatt pipelines and portfolios. Seldom does the limelight extend to the construction crews putting steel on the ground. But clean electrons aren't generated by hope, targets, and schematics. It's the engineering, procurement, and construction firms that are executing the vision for a clean energy transition. And therein lies an overlooked hurdle on the horizon. There simply aren't enough qualified EPCs and workers to meet the booming demand for solar projects. And rich incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act only stand to magnify the glutton supply. I'm John Ingle, Content Director for Renewable Energy World. This week on Factor This, I'm joined by Chris Dunbar, CEO of Blue Ridge Power, for an inside look at how one of the industry's leading utility-scale solar and storage EPCs is navigating a chronic labor shortage and a tumultuous market plagued by supply chain constraints, trade disputes, and the interconnection slog. Sure, gigawatts of solar projects are in motion, but who's going to build them? That's all next on Factor This from Renewable Energy World. Chris Dunbar, thanks so much for joining the Fact of This podcast. Great to see you. Yeah, thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're chatting virtually, which which is kind of funny given that um, we're probably two and a half, maybe three miles apart as we sit right now in, in Asheville, North Carolina. And I think longtime listeners of this podcast will recognize that the Asheville bias is real and it is it is pronounced. And so I'm happy to after you know, previously speaking with with Pinegate Renewable CEO Ben Cat to get to to chat with you about the EPC business over at Blue Ridge Power. So thanks so much for doing this, and um, uh, this is your opportunity for at least ten to fifteen seconds to rave about your your headquarters being based in Asheville, North Carolina. Well, uh, you know, we're committed to you know raising our families and having our business in Asheville. We've been uh, very fortunate to be able to recruit a lot of good talent to the area just because it is Asheville. Um, and so we wouldn't have it any other way. I think um, some people might think that it has some geographical disadvantages, but actually it's been quite the opposite. We've uh, been very been able to be very successful here in Asheville. And once again, it's no better place in the country to uh, to raise a family. Totally agree. And, you know, Cypress Creek has a big presence here, um, a, a company you all know well. And I, I, there's some next era folks sprinkled around that work remotely. So it's kind of cool to see the clean energy ecosystem that's that's grown out of this little uh, metropolis in the in the mountains. So um, I always take every opportunity I can to, to rave about where we live. Before we get into this conversation about the state of the EPC world, the impact of the IRA and all of these um, headwinds that the industry faces, in part because of such high demand for solar and storage production these days, which is good. Maybe it helps to do some level setting on a brief history of Blue Ridge Power 
you know, your position in the market, the relationship with Pinegate and how that has evolved over time and, you know, how that splits between EPC and, and IPP? Sure. Uh, I can kind of go back to our origins of Blue Ridge Power um, started from Pinegate Renewables EPC. And um, we have common ownership. Both companies are owned by the same uh, group. At some point at Pinegate, we realized that the EPC opportunities that were out in front um, were, were significant and that we probably uh, would be well served to split that part of the company off to pursue those, those opportunities in the market. Um, we also wanted to make a significant acquisition at the time. There was a company who had been a subcontractor for years for Pinegate. Um, and before that, you know, I mean, you name it on the East Coast, and they had done work for Horn Brothers Construction. We wanted to make that acquisition. But when we looked at the number of people that we were going to bring over in that acquisition, we just decided um, it's better to make the split now, create a new company that will house the acquisition and the uh, former Pinegate EPC employees, and we'll call it Blue Ridge Power. Um, I'm a partner in, in the company, so I uh, stepped away from Pinegate over to Blue Ridge to be the CEO of Blue Ridge Power. And so Pinegate Renewables then, which we've touched on here just a couple of times, utility-scale developer of solar and storage across the country, one of one of the uh, growing pipelines that we keep a close eye on. You're doing a lot of the work for that pipeline, correct, still within the, you know, kind of vertically integrated structure of Pinegate? That's correct. We, um, you know, we look at Pinegate as a sister company. I mean, you name it, the relationship is very close. We have uh, a number of advantages in the market as we, you know, we view each other as being vertically integrated. We're able to, I would say, look at risk very differently, look at uh, doing work early in the process very differently than you would have to look uh, at a traditional third-party relationship with a, with a customer in the market. And the reason I reached out to you for this episode was because Blue Ridge Power is a true EPC. I mean, you are going out building projects. You have a team of professionals and technicians that make up this company, whereas it's fair to say in our business, in this industry, there are some companies that claim to be that vertically integrated developer that are an EPC in name only. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think you see some developers who house engineering, procurement, construction management services uh, for their own for their own projects. It's not really a service that's marketable or a service that you could um, you could say has like real value out of the market outside of that integration. They're not, uh, I, I don't know of any that are actually performing any of the work. You know, it's mostly just being contracted out. And, and I think it would be very difficult for anybody to try to do that. I mean, we looked at it from every angle and ultimately decided that this was the best way if you want to participate in the market from an EPC standpoint and a de developer standpoint. Doing it through one company uh, would be very challenging. So this is the way we decided to do it. And a similar transition that we've seen from the likes of Borrego, um, you know, selling off their development arm and that becoming New Leaf and saying we want to focus on the, you know, the EPC and the the O and M business. So anyway, you've seen a similar shakeout within the industry. And I, the idea for this episode was born from these anecdotal conversations that I was having with developers through my reporting at Renewable Energy World that. There is this glut in EPC availability that existed even before the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, seemingly came out of nowhere and, and lit a fire under this industry that was already growing rapidly. And that in those conversations, each one of those developers has said, 
you know, we're worried that this is only going to get worse because, you know, pipelines are growing, uh, more projects need to get built. And they're looking around at the landscape of, of EPCs that are performing this work. And you're booked out for 12 months, maybe more. Some operations have two-year backlogs. First, maybe give a reaction to that characterization of the EPC space and and maybe using you know Blue Ridge Power's own workbook. Can you frame sort of how the sector looks pre and post IRA and how we're, we're sort of finding our footing? Sure. I mean, just going to the first uh, statement, which is that there are not enough qualified EPCs to complete all of the work that's out in front of the uh, the industry right now. You know, I think that's it's a lot. It's more nuanced than that. The first holistic problem is that there are just not enough uh, skilled workers to perform all of the work. Um, but what I see happening more and more often is that the quality opportunities, and I think EPCs have gotten very good at kind of assessing the quality of each individual opportunity. Um, there's still a, tr- a healthy amount of competition for all of those opportunities. Uh, and, and by quality, I think you've got a site that is that is buildable. You've got a developer who understands lead times. Uh, there's been a good bit of feasibility, uh, engineering feasibility kind of done on the project. You've got some realistic dates and you've got realistic financing. Those projects uh, still have a, a healthy amount of competition. I think where you are seeing a lack of interest from qualified EPCs are with projects that don't have one or, or even more of those things. You know, you've got an unrealistic timeline. You don't have a clear path to financing. You're in geographies that just aren't um, suitable for, for constructability for whatever reason. Um, sites that have been, I mean, I think we all are familiar with projects that have been sold, 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 or passed along and passed along. And, um, you know, you talk to somebody about a project and they're like, oh yeah, I remember that project. We owned it three years ago. <laughs> well, there's probably something wrong with that project. And, you know, and everybody's trying to, to do their best to, to make it happen. But I think there's a number of projects that are in that camp that are um, probably that developer, that owner is having trouble finding qualified EPCs that are interested in doing it. So it is, uh, you know, generally we have, we pass up way more opportunities than we actually pursue. Um, so I think that's, you know, probably an indication that there's more work to be done than there are people that are capable of doing it. But, but the projects that we do pursue are quality projects and we're under, uh, you know, we're, we're competing with five or six qualified companies each time. So how much has changed from the Inflation Reduction Act? If you can classify the last year for Blue Ridge Power, has that pickiness altered at all because of the legislation? Is it, you know, fairly consistent given just how the market has been progressing in recent years? How do you classify that? You know, it's kind of hard to tell right now what the Inflation Act, uh, Reduction Act has done for the industry uh, from the EPC standpoint. You kind of have two things competing with each other at one time. You've got this um, really long road of prosperity in the industry due to the IRA. Um, you've got all these bonus adders that are going to make projects pencil it more frequently, are going to uh, create more, you know, more valuable opportunities across the country. Um, at the same time, you have a lot, uh, you know, a real lack of definition on a number of those, you know, bonus programs, the bonus adders. We just more, uh, recently got some domestic content clarifications that I think are really helping people understand that energy community clarifications uh, that have been helpful. But at the same time, you know, you have some, you have a real lack of clarity around the labor standards. So you have that, which is, which should be propelling the industry forward. We should have ample opportunity for a long time. At the same time, you have these, uh, 
you know, tremendously high cost increases that happened over the past 18 months through inflation, uh, supply chain constraints. So you really need to see that kind of tail off. And that stopped a lot of projects. I mean, and this, that kind of happened pre and post IRA. Mm-hmm. Um, you were, we were experiencing, you know, you would uh, try to understand the cost of a project one day. And I would say within 90 days, you were probably wrong about the, the estimate on that project. Um, and so that happened before and was happening after the IRA was passed. So while, you know, if you look out long term, there's plenty of projects uh, that weren't going to happen pre-IRA that are now capable of happening. You've got people that are investing more and more money into the space that weren't doing it before. It's all very positive. But I think we see a number of opportunities that are still kind of frozen because costs need to come down and those IRA parameters need to get defined before people can really move forward and understand how to finance the project. Hey, Factor This listeners, it's John Ingle. I wanted to let you know that you can now watch every new episode of the Factor This podcast on YouTube. Just search Renewable Energy World and leave a rating and review while you're there. Thanks for listening. And we're going to get to more of those adders here in a, in a minute, because I do think that's a, a really important aspect of, of EPC work, especially in the, the Inflation Reduction Act era that we're now in with responsibilities around, you know, who adheres to the labor standards and who is meeting domestic content and all of these very important things that are required to make some of those those projects that didn't pencil before pencil now. So to that point on the projects that were were maybe dead in the water before the Inflation Reduction Act that developers now are pulling out from bottom of the stack, the supply of EPCs hasn't really changed. But here you have all of these new projects that now, because of the adders and because of the incentives, can go forward. How do you see that all playing out as developers are fighting for their positions within your backlogs and, and workbooks um, and, and EPCs around the country? Is, is there going to be that strain just indefinitely? Well, I don't think anything's indefinite. I mean, I, I think you have been looking for new entries to the market. I think the IRA really allows for you know, construction companies, big institutional construction companies that have been sitting on the sidelines looking at the renewable space, deciding whether to get in or not. The IRA really kind of gives them the, the runway to get in. Um, and be in for a long time. So I, I have okay. no doubt that there are going to be significant entries into the market. I mean, the one thing that's happened over the past, and I think this is probably like three or four years, is that the barrier for entry has really grown. Uh, to be a qualified EPC, I mean, you have to not only have um, you know the ability to manage a $100, $200, 300000000 million project. So you've just got to have the infrastructure in your company to do that. Um, but you also have to be able to manage uh, you know, your supply chain. You have to be able to manage purchasing, uh, you know, components from all over the world. You have to be able to manage pretty complex engineering uh, coordination. Uh, so companies that used to be able to just, uh, you know, wake up one morning and put on a, I'm a solar EPC hat, very, very unlikely that you're going to be able to do that now. Uh, the Even the subcon, even if you feel like you could subcontract all the scopes uh, pretty reliably. You know, I think that's uh, challenging. If if you were to get more entries from the EPC standpoint, I think you would still run into an issue with the subcontracting market, which I think is, you know, uh, kind of 
if, if there's anything that's unhealthy right now, it's the number of subcontractors that are participating in the market that are qualified, that are capable of performing work. Um, it kind of goes back to the what I was saying in the beginning, where you just have the number of workers that are available and, and capable of doing the work doesn't really add up to the amount of work that needs to be done. Well, maybe get into that a little bit more and, and dive into the biggest challenges facing the EPC world today. Is that so far ahead, the availability of qualified workers so far ahead of everything, every other issue? And maybe what are some of those other headaches that you face? Qualified workers is a big one, but we are, you know, Blue Ridge Power created a program uh, about a year ago called the Power Up Program, which basically allows us to train entry-level workers and give them a path to um, becoming a skilled uh, a skilled employee. Um, and so that's been successful. And that's just kind of our way of handling it. I think we were able to bring over 200 additional staff members last year through that program. Oh, wow. Um, so, that's so that's it's not been, a small amount. It's not a small amount. I mean, for a company, I mean, we're a, we're a thousand people at Blue Ridge Power. So a significant portion of our workforce is, is through that program. So that was our response to what we were seeing as being, you know, just kind of a chronic shortage of qualified uh, workers and, and getting them, you know, to the next stage where they can be uh, electricians, where they can be uh, site supervision and managers is kind of where we are now. But um, as far as finding people, showing them what's possible in the, in the industry, showing them a path to success. That actually wasn't that difficult. We were able to do that uh, relatively quickly. So that's, so that's a challenge, but it's a solvable problem for us. Um, other people, you know, and I think it's also just where you are. And we're on the East Coast. I think if you're sitting, you know, potentially in the middle of the country, it might be more challenging for whatever reason. Um, or if you're sitting in really high, you know, wage areas such as California, it's going to be challenging for different reasons, but we were we were able to be successful on that front. You know, I think that one of the the more challenging issues facing EPCs today is just continues to be the duration and of the cycle of the the life cycle of a project and the number mm-hmm. of decisions that get made before you actually get engaged with the project that that have a significant impact on its constructability on its cost. Like um, what? Well, I would say, you know, the way that the um, the project's been laid out and a lot of this kind of impa- is impacted by zoning. Um, so the commitments that were made during the zoning process, the footprint of the project, the technology that's going to be on the project, you know, that gets more or less selected in the interconnection process. So you've got inverters that are selected. If it's battery storage, that's going to get selected. So all that stuff usually happens before an EPC is actually engaged into the project. And so they're kind of inheriting these decisions and ultimately deciding, you know, and some of them can have significant, uh, especially uh, the land constraints and the way that the project itself is laid out can have significant impact on the, on the cost of the project. That's an interesting point you make because the P in EPC procurement, a, a lot of that you hear is starting to shift more toward the developer that they're procuring, you know, significant amounts of it, at least on the module and, and storage side is that seeping into other areas of the, the 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 procurement process as well. Like, what are you seeing developers take more of from what you know is traditionally a core EPC responsibility? Yeah, so uh, you know, modules and storage, I think, are really uh, a developer's kind of better suited to take that long term risk because the only way you're going to, at this point, buy modules. Uh, and, and reliably have them delivered to your projects on a year-over-year basis is to do some longer-term deal. And we see them announced, you know, pretty much on a weekly basis, whether someone's yeah. working with First Solar 
um, long G, you know, you name it. Someone is doing a multi-year, multi-gigawatt deal with those module providers. And so if you look at who's best suited to do that, I think a developer is much better suited to take that risk on because they have the pipeline. They can understand um, how that pipeline is ultimately going to be constructed over a five-year period, six-year period. And it gives them flexibility. They're not necessarily tied to a, to an EPC who's who's done that for them. So I think developers will continue to do that, and that's probably the right thing. Storage is very similar. EPCs buying storage as they need it uh, for projects, so on the spot market, I think it's kind of an impossible task because the storage timelines, the delivery timelines are so long. So uh, developers doing that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, other components, probably less so. Um, I think that inverters would probably be the next logical thing. But I also think there's a case to be made that you're better off having the EPC provide the inverters. There's just a lot of coordination and, and the delivery and the skidding and the quality control that goes into the manufacturing process of, a, of an inverter that you probably would want your EPC um, responsible for and, and ultimately taking the risk around. So I can see that going either way. But as far as uh, you know, scope, kind of moving from the EPC over to the developer. I think primarily that's going to be on modules and, and energy storage products. You talk about the responsibility of the EPC to manage these sometimes 200, 300 million dollar projects. And that alone is for at least a few years, a business of its of, of its own and, and giant corporation with hundreds of employees working on the site. And you're dealing with vendors and all of these different moving parts. And now the Inflation Reduction Act throws on top of it these these adders for domestic content for prevailing wage is not an adder, but now a co- you know a component of the ITC and all of these different things that now developers are going to count on on you the EPC to adhere to. Am I right? Like in in terms of you have these apprenticeship thresholds that you need to meet in terms of the the hours that are spent working on the project. How are you looking at the changing policy framework and how you make sure that you are meeting each of those targets for all of these simultaneous projects that you have going on at one time. Yeah, I mean, the, the IRA compliance is, is complex and it is going to require a coordinated effort between EPCs and their, uh, and their customers. You know, what we have done is, uh, you know, outsource a lot of the uh, compliance strategy just so we can get a better understanding of like, how are we going to actually accomplish this? Um, we've leveraged that power up program that I was describing before mm-hmm. to really kind of be uh, converted it or, or also be able to handle an apprenticeship program. You also have to go out into the, uh, each individual state and, and develop a relationship with that state apprenticeship office and, and gain those apprenticeship certifications. There's a lot of work that's going to be done. And, you know, we've staffed it. I think we've added five people and that's all they, that's all they do is thinking about our, Workforce development and our apprenticeship uh, compliance, which is probably, you know, a lot of projects um, have been grandfathered. So you're really not dealing with it this year, might not be dealing with it next year. But in, in a couple of years, you're absolutely going to be faced with if you're going to be competitive and you're going to be capable of because um, this is just to maintain the tax credit. It's not a bonus. You know, it's not an adder. So just to just to help uh, a development partner or, or a customer maintain the credit that they had probably been modeling all this time anyway, you're going to have to figure this out. So I think it's, um, I think it's challenging. It's one that can be, you know, we're, we're kind of figuring out in real time that's going to be more expensive. So I think your average, uh, you know, 
if you just look at hourly rates and you're, a project's going to have uh, 1 million, 2 million hours, whatever it has, uh, you know, that's going to go up on, uh, on a per hour basis. So everybody's going to have to kind of bear the cost a little bit, but I think ultimately it's good for the industry. It's the right thing. Um, we should be organized when it comes to how we're uh, promoting our workforce. We, you know, it kind of helps solve long term the large problem of not having enough qualified workers. So we're generally, um, in favor of it, but it does require a lot of a lot of work to get to be capable of being compliant. How is this supply and demand imbalance in terms of the projects and the availability of workforce and EPCs to build them impacting how you select those partners that you work with? Has the IRA allowed you to be even pickier than you were before? And maybe outline some of those characteristics that the developer asset owner that is listening to this can um, follow to try to better appeal to the Blue Ridge powers of the world in order to, you know, secure that that contract. Sure, I mean, I, I think a developer who is has has firm grasp of the construction process, the construction timelines, they understand, they have a perspective on IRA compliance, what their needs are going to be. Someone who is going to be capable of meeting you halfway when it comes to those conversations. They're going to have to occur during the contracting process are, are critical. And in fact, I would say that all of our uh, all the projects that we select are with developers that are at that, you know, more sophisticated developers that are capable of that. Um, I, I, it was not long ago. Uh, now, the projects were a lot smaller, but, you know, someone would send uh, an EPC a KMZ file and they would get a, a hard cost, you know, a hard bid back within uh, within days. And that bid would ultimately make it to contract and everybody would, would move forward. And, you know, it's just not going to happen that way anymore. A developer has to have a very firm grasp of, um, of the construction process. And, and, and it de- helps de-risk it for the EPC. If they have realistic expectations um, and a realistic understanding of what's possible, then an EPC is going to be more comfortable lowering their price because they're going to know that I'm dealing with someone who is going to help me mitigate risk, not someone who's going to continue to push risk on to the uh, onto the project onto us. Has that understanding of risk and flexibility in terms of timelines and delivery with between developer and EPC improved over the last you know two to three years? Just given how big of a mess it's been, like I, <laughs> I'd love for you to add some color around being the CEO of a of a solar and storage EPC, given that. First, it's COVID. And then just as we feel like we're, you know, emerging from COVID, the supply chain constraints that already existed to a degree because of the pandemic are magnified because of the tariff concerns involving the Oxen Solar Tariff Petition, which we have talked about at nauseum on this show and won't go into the details again for at least a few more episodes. Um, what's that been like and and how have you maintained those lines of communications with developers saying like, look, like we, this, we're we doing the best we can. There's not much more we can do outside of, of waiting for some of the tension to ease. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we've always been uh, through that period in a, in a pretty enviable position in which the vast majority of our work was with Pinegate. So we both had a vested interest in solving those problems. We weren't trying to <laughs> The guy yeah, down the finger. hall wasn't shouting yeah. at you going, you're out. <laughs> it didn't, that's right. It didn't do us uh, any favors to, to blame each other. So um, so I don't have any real like horror stories. 
I would, you know, internally we experienced a tremendous amount of, uh, of pain, just, you know, navigating the oxen tariff situation, navigating supply chain issues. But one thing that I, you know, and I'm really proud of this for, for both companies is that all of our goals were met, uh, you know, over that two and a half year, three year period. Um, we are, you know, with the number of projects that we wanted to build, the number of projects we wanted to finance, you know, we got that done, but it did take, um, a, a coordinated effort. We weren't able to predict everything, but we were able to solve most of the problems that, that, that came up. I think what, you know, if you just look at the larger industry, you know, I think developers by necessity did develop a greater appreciation for the EPC process. And I think if you look at the industry as a whole, it's traditionally been, you know, kind of finance driven. So most developers are run by people who are rooted in finance, not necessarily EPC. Pine Gate CEO, Ben Cat. <laughs> yes. Uh, ben and, and Ray. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, they realized probably two years ago or a year and a half ago that we have to understand the EPC process more uh, at a more granular level than we do currently. And so I think that's been helpful for everyone so that when you're having conversations about what's possible or what's not possible, um, you know, everybody's coming at it with a with a, a kind of a foundation of education that makes the conversation productive. Well, and building stuff is really hard. Like we we all have the the pipeline conversation is always an interesting one because everyone seems to have at least a gigawatt in their pipeline these days, multi gigawatts right. <laughs> for a lot of folks. How many of those projects are real? That's a different you know conversation because when it comes to actually deploying assets and getting steel on the ground and getting workers on site and electricians and and the procurement channels and supply chain and all of these things, that's really hard to do. Like that's that's when the the realism has to hit that, um, you know, you still need people and, it, you know, it takes energy to deploy these things. And I do think, to your point, that is lost in the conversation sometimes that we look at EPCs as maybe a, a bit of more of an afterthought um, solution provider of the the industry. But I, I, I don't think that's the case at all. And the reason why I wanted to have this conversation and, and produce an episode solely focused on the EPC business, because it is so critical to whether we reach our goals and achieve all these targets that we've set out for ourselves, because you don't start, you know, generating electrons from uh, NTP, <laughs> you know, like you got to right. build the stuff. I mean, I think, I think people who their background is finance, you know, they, and I, and I think this was probably more true five years ago. But, you know, EPC was thought to be or was was going to be largely like commoditized and that you were going to be able to get mm -hmm. you know, pretty standardized pricing across a, mul you know, a multitude of options anytime you needed to build something. And what we found out over the past you know, couple of years is that's just not going to be the case. I mean, the numbers are too large. The projects are too complex um, and that you're going to have to have an EPC that is capable of bringing a lot of value from a um just you know their their knowledge of the process, their ability to engineer um, solutions to the problems that are inevitably going to occur. So I think EPCs, the ones that have been successful, bring a, a tremendous amount of value to the process, and it'd be very difficult, I think, at this point to commoditize that. Well, like how? I mean, maybe expand on that a little bit more. And and I'm guessing that that goes back to your previous statement about getting involved earlier in the process and the value to having a clear partner who you know brings an EPC in at maybe more of the ground floor stage. Can you expand on that a bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, as as we, uh, you know, as Blue Ridge expands and expands its customer base, I mean, one thing that we look at is, is a 
customer willing to engage us at an earlier stage in the process than an RFP in which they've done, you know, let's just say 15% of the drawings. Um, yeah, like when is ideal when you when you think about that? Can you? Yeah, can you put I mean, I think ideal would that? be as they're making equipment selections uh, in the. I, I believe that most projects fall, uh, most utility scale projects kind of fall along these lines. There's a very early uh, selection at interco- when you're filling out the interconnection application of equipment um, that allows the interconnection interconnection uh, application to move forward, and then at some point when the project becomes more mature. It gets revised and I think, uh, you know, it gets kind of pulled off the shelf. Either the interconnection uh, costs have been vetted and, and deemed like we can move this project forward because we're going to be able to uh, underwrite it and ultimately profit from it. So we're going to pull it off the shelf and we're going to start moving it uh, towards uh, financing and, and construction. I think that is a great point to engage uh, in EPC and what we look for in partners are people that are willing to talk to us about their pipeline, you know, two years out, three years out, because those are the projects that right now a good EPC can bring a lot of value to. Um, it's, you know, if you're, if you want to start construction in a hundred days and you're taking a project out to the market, I would say like the amount of value uh, that can be added to that project at that point is, is pretty limited. So having someone who's helping you select materials, having someone who's helping build a budget, who understands your financial constraints, who understands your cash flow, timing issues, I think it um, is incredibly valuable, and you know, a number of our customers see the value see the value in that, and, and we're engaged at that level. I'm sure that avoids you know unexpected hiccups down the road too, as you near construction too, right? And even maybe streamlines the construction process itself because you, the EPC, is able to begin thinking about things earlier on than that you know hundred day out marker, like you were mentioning, that you can start thinking. Okay, it's stage three, stage four, stage five. This is where we'll need to be, and this is how we'll position assets. Yeah, I mean, I think everything from employee housing and staffing to whether you're going to have, uh, you know, community like NIMBY type issues. I think all of that can help. You know, an EPC can kind of help solve that stuff. And can, and you know, one thing we've seen is we can have a tremendously, you know, we can have a positive or a negative impact in the community depending on. Uh, you know, depending on how we drive, how our employees act when they go to the stores or in hotels. And so we, we spend a lot of time discussing that and making sure that, you know, our, our impact is positive. So I think if we, um, if we can set up job fairs, if we can set up community meetings prior to uh, being on site, we can add a lot of value to an, a developer who might be experiencing some kind of pushback on a project in, in certain areas. That's a great callback to an episode that we did with uh, Solve Energy CEO George Hirschman. He said the same thing that, you know, I know developers don't want to give away their hand too early on in the process because of commercial advantages and competitive, the, the competitiveness of projects in communities and all of these sorts of things. But he made that similar con- comment that if you let us go in first, since we're going to be the main hiring authority and the one that has the most direct link to that community, we can start really establishing these relationships early on and make sure that they last well into uh, the future beyond commissioning. How do you think about that too in your role in making sure that Blue Ridge Power and its development partners don't only parachute into communities and then you know evaporate once the switch is flipped? 
I think, I think, you know, George is, is exactly right. I think, you know, the asset's going to be there for a long time. And it's very rare at this point where there's only one asset in a community. You know, usually if there's a, um, a reason to be there for one project, you're going to see multiple projects. And I've seen it, you know, a number of times where the first project that got built put a bad taste in everyone's mouth and the second one gets much more difficult and so on. So I think, um, you know, I think looking at communities, not as like transactional, but as community partners, even crime. I mean, you know, if you have a solar farm that's being con- you know, consistently broken into, vandalized, uh, things stolen, uh, what I find is that uh, if you have an involved community, that's very unlikely. And if you don't know anybody in your, in your community and you're trying to build a project really quick and get out of there. Yeah, who's going to step up for you? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And having neighbors that are fans of the solar farm. Um, I mean, we have to be realistic with like what it is. It's an industrial power plant. So nobody loves that. But I also think that um, the way you treat the people in the community during the construction process, during the development process, making sure that you're honoring the things that you say are going to happen. uh, And then looking at the asset long term as a benefit of the community, whether it be through tax base or additional employment opportunities to me. That's how you kind of win that battle. What did you learn? Just to go back to that previous thought we were having on on the pandemic and oxen, what did you learn, and how did it? How did that that period of time change at all your contracting process and how you structure these deals with developers in terms of mitigating risk and navigating these unforeseen circumstances like a global pandemic that puts a project on a shelf for a year or the oxen solar tariff petition, which April of last year, everything came to a halt and the bills keep coming, you know, and they have to be paid. And and that leads to a lot of uncertainty. Have you revisited sort of how you structure all of of that, given this unprecedented 24 month ish stretch we've had? Yeah, uh, of course. I mean, you know, one of the things that we've invested in, uh, I think we're probably 10x what we were prior to Oxen, prior to the pandemic, is in logistics. I mean, just understanding where your components are at any given time is is critical and understanding what your schedule is going to be. Um, So we now have, I mean, and these aren't people that have been repurposed out of project management. We have logistics professionals uh, and entire team of people who know where, you know, whether a pro- whether a product is in China or whether a product is uh, in port or, you know, being trucked across the country from Wisconsin, we know where that stuff is. And we, and we actually decided to, all of our last mile freight is being managed directly by us. We find the trucks. Oh, interesting. You know, so we kind of took that scope away from our vendors because the service was so poor, it was having an adverse impact on site that was, um, it costs way more than just descoping it. And actually, we're getting better value out of it, too. Um, so I would say one big change we made was just investing in logistics in a way that I don't mm-hmm. know that a lot of other companies have or, or, or certainly nobody had prior to, prior to the pandemic. And, and, and so the other thing is just looking at how risk should be allocated. I mean, it used to be you could put a, uh, an estimate on a project and that estimate was going to kind of live with the project for maybe a year, maybe a year and a half before the project actually started construction. How long is it now? (laughs) Right. Well, it wasn't, you know, and it wasn't going to move. Um, So you would, you know, you would estimate something in 2018. And then in 2020, the idea was you would pick it up. And when, when costs were falling, that kind of worked for everybody. I mean, it, it kind of, people were able to get away with that. But what we've learned is that you have to be updating estimates and truing up estimates as more information comes in. 
as the, uh, you know, whatever commodities you're kind of going after, as that market settles, you have to understand where you are and, and, you know, and making your customers aware that this is based on the information we have right now, this is what we believe this will cost. Um, And we're going to kind of keep you updated as we uh, do more exploratory work, as we do more engineering work. We also invested, uh, we also invested in more just market intelligence. So, you know, we have people who specialize in commodity intelligence who know or can like, you know, help us predict what copper is going to do in a year and 60 days and 90 days. Instead of relying on an outside vendor for that. That's right. I mean, we were, we were over reliant on a relatively small number of vendors. So everyone in the industry kind of had the same information, which was yeah. pretty dangerous. Um, if it's wrong, it's really dangerous. So diversify, you know, and I think one thing that everybody learned um, is that diversification of your vendors is, is, is important. Um, while your desire is to simplify supply chain, any vendor is capable of having an issue at any given time if the headwinds are, are, are strong enough. So uh, diversifying vendors, you know, we, one of the ways we got around, uh, you know, the oxen issues and we're able to keep modules can deliver is that we had diversified uh, our supply chain with module vendors. And so we had op- options, uh, even though oxen was shutting down a large part of our supply chain. We were we had options to to go around that and to secure modules for projects that were uh, you know that were finishing construction now. You mentioned some of the efficiencies and and changes you've made already um, due to lessons learned. I like that logistics piece was really interesting. Any other er- areas that you see the EPC space evolving in the coming years? Is there is there even more room to run when you think about here's how we get more nimble, mitigate risk. Um, you know, find efficiency, save some money, deliver projects quicker. Um, you know, you're, you're seeing this heightened focus within the industry around sustainable practices, which is good, and, and domestic content, which is great. How are you approaching those different aspects as you think about the next iteration of EPC work? Well, I think one thing the IRA does, um, and, and I think this is really is generally positive when you look at infrastructure investment and infrastructure construction is it's taken some of the pressure off the price um, of, of the project being the number one driver as to who gets selected as an EPC. And it's really put a lot of emphasis on execution certainty. So our yeah. development partners aren't necessarily, uh, you know, they're not going to overpay, but they're not going to be worried about the lowest bid if that bid doesn't give them the execution certainty that will, that their, you know, their investors demand, that the company themselves uh, may demand. Uh, so, Doing all the things that are required to help guarantee execution. So that means, you know, your um, the project's being done safely, which is almost like a new concept in the industry. It shouldn't be, but more and more people <laughs> you, are looking. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, I just mean it, it was deprioritized, you know, for a number of years. Uh, I don't think okay. you heard enough. I don't think there was enough conversation about employee safety on solar sites. Um, and so now, you know, uh, customers are demanding, you know, we want to know how safe you have been and how safe you're going to be on our job and what you're doing about it. Um, we want to know how uh, stable you are from a, you know, uh, from a financial standpoint. We want to understand um, how you're going to manage the project. You know, what's the, the, the project team, how long have they been with the company? You know, you can't just hire a group today and expect them to be on a, on a 200 megawatt project tomorrow. So they've done all these things to, uh, you know, it's a more sophisticated approach to project management that didn't exist in the industry 
several years ago. And a lot of that is because, um, and this is how infrastructure works and other, you know, uh, in oil and gas, uh, certainly in road and, 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 uh, you know, bridges, there's a lot more emphasis being placed on, we need this done. You know, we're going to de-risk the execution itself as opposed to the lowest number is going to win this. And that's what, you know, that's what we're kind of driving for. And what you're, you're tying a nice bow onto now is that, you know, the EPC function and job is not, uh, there is not an absence of intellect here. Like it is still a very highly sophisticated operation. And I think maybe at times unfairly cast as more of the, you know, the blue collar, the construction boots on the ground, lower tier job capacity. I mean, this, this work is so critical to making sure that that projects become a reality that, um, you know, I, I think the the focus needs to be a little bit more 50 50 as a as we look at it as an industry. And if it goes poorly, you know, there's nothing that will complicate a, a project more than, you know, a poor EPC effort that leads. You know, you've got a litany of either quality issues or the project just never met its goals from a um, from a you know start and finish standpoint, from a schedule standpoint. You've got significant budget overruns and you've got an EPC that no longer can carry those. So they may be going out of business. I mean, nothing will throw a customer into disarray, especially if that customer is, uh, you know, solar developer more than having a project that isn't going to turn on. Uh, and so, I mean, you know, the entire process kind of relies on those projects getting completed on time so that the, the financing can move through the project and on to the next one. So, um, so I think execution certainty, you know, what I think is going to happen uh, and one of the things where, you know, one of the things I think we have the most work to do on is sophisticated developers are going to develop a stable of EPCs. Uh, they're going to allocate projects to EPCs. There's going to be plenty of pricing exercises being done, plenty of, you know, if you, uh, you know, competitive bidding, but it's going to be secondary to making sure that you've got the right solution for the, the project that you're trying to construct. And so, um, so I think having four APCs that are involved in, in your pipeline over a four-year period who understand your pipeline and understand like what opportunities are going to be available to them specifically 24, 36 months from now, I think is going to become more and more the norm, just like developers getting out and buying uh, modules that are 36, 48 months out. What excites you most, Chris, about what you're working on today and, and the future ahead for Blue Ridge Power and Pinegate and, um, you know, leaning back into this conversation we've had about the last two years, which I think is an interesting one, just given, you know, how tumultuous it's been. Uh, what have you learned about yourself as a leader to navigating some of those headwinds? Uh, well, I'll kind of make that two questions. So the first one, just what's, what excites me most. I mean, I think there's still massive efficiencies to be gained in the actual work that we do. Um, I think if you just look at it on a, you know, work hours per megawatt basis or whatever metric you use to kind of judge efficiency, I think that we're not even scratching the surface of what's possible on a, on a well-organized site. I think automation is going to start to play a, a more significant role. We're demoing some, uh, there's some automated module uh, placing uh, on a project right now. And it's, you know, it's fascinating. It's not good enough yet, but, it, but you know, without doing that, we're, it never will be. So I think that's going to play a more significant role. Um, as far as what I've learned as a leader, uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. You know, I think trying to predict the future is, is not a great idea. Um, and, and being patient with people as they're working through very difficult things uh, it, if you're not getting the outcome you want, 
it's almost never because the person who's working on that uh, that problem isn't dedicated to coming up with a solution. A lot of times things just take longer than you expect. Um, you have to be patient with with your employees as they're going through um, you know some pretty significant challenges. And I think if we had um, you know if you're quick to move on from uh, we'll say like an engineering group working on a very uh, difficult problem, and you and you move that problem to another group, you know, you're probably not doing yourself any favor. Having having patience, understanding that these things are complex and that the timelines are longer um, as as they get more complex, to me, you know, is 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 kind of been really important in maintaining the culture and the uh, the staff engagement that we have at Blue Ridge Power. I'm so happy you brought up the automation piece because it was not on my list to ask you about, even though it interests me so much about how this space is evolving and how we view safety, how we view labor shortages and, and the, the best deployment of human cap, you know, human capital and human labor in terms of building these gigantic solar projects. I think there are a number of companies doing some really interesting things around automated solar construction. Um, you know, TerraBase being one of them. We've had TerraBase founder and CEO Matt Campbell on this podcast. Not saying I, I don't know if you're working with them or not, but I think last last week they announced that they're going to begin you know gigawatt level uh, factory production of their uh, kind of prefab on site automation uh, uh, offering to streamline construction and another firm whose name escapes me, I think a few months ago, got some DOE field testing completed around automated, uh, you know, solar construction, including, you know, the delivery of panels using autonomous vehicles and then robotic arms moving panels through the racking. And it's just, there's so many interesting things happening in this, this space. How do you see it as someone who has you know, led an EPC through the traditional maturation of a, a, a construction company building things to seeing what's on the horizon with technology. Where do you think it ends up shaking out? Well, that's I think, a really loaded you know, question because I, I, it, <laughs> it fascinates well, me, and I know it would drastically change your your business as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think those things get adopted as they make economic sense, and there's no, um, you know, once they start to become economical. You know, everybody will be uh, forced to, to change and to adopt uh, adapt those those new techniques. Um, I'm always down the middle on on automation. You know, it gets oversold a lot as something that's going to really kind of change uh, a process that you know that that probably um, is pretty efficient already. Um, the you know you kind of lose me at robots. Like I'm not. You know, I'm more practical <laughs> as much as I, I'm, you know, uh, I think it's I think it's as interesting as the next person. You know, I think when you're looking at um, at a, a customer who's demanding execution certainty and they're paying you two hundred million dollars, you know, you have to be very careful about what you're willing to deploy on that project. That's going to get you the outcome that you're looking for. But uh, but it's it's, you know, so I would say I don't see a wholesale push into automated construction uh, but I do see it taking the place of some of some of the key tasks that currently exist on site primarily uh, you know setting modules I think that that's one that could be done you could make a case that that's kind of ripe for automation what are some of those areas that you think you know robots are not going to directly slide into anytime soon 
Always going to need electricians. A lot, a lot of the, yeah, the electrical <laughs> side. Anything that requires a tremendous amount of dexterity. Yeah. You know, I think, um, you know, combiner boxes, uh, in, inverters. You know, there's just things that you're going to need intelligence, uh, human intelligence, and and you're going to need human kind of dexterity. I mean, I'm perfectly willing to be wrong, but it's probably a ways out before we get. Uh, and, and it probably won't be solar. You know, if you have... Uh, if you have robots that are that fine-tuned, it won't be solar that they're getting used on at first. You know, it's probably going to be a number of other things that are more critical. That's um, a good point. <laughs> but It's easy but to it's, think about this industry in a vacuum sometimes and forget right. that there's like a whole world out there of other things. Um, well, that's, that's an interesting point because you mentioned that you are looking at some aspects of automation, even given your you know healthy skepti- skepticism as, of how that the construction of solar projects will evolve. What areas are you looking at at, and seeing that, okay, maybe this is more of a near-term solution? Yeah, so we're looking at module installation as something that can be automated, or at least some parts of it can be automated in a way that kind of protects, uh, you know, protects our uh, folks on site that allows us to move modules when it's windier out. I mean, there are just some advantages that we see to being able to lift modules with like a vacuum type system and place them onto, onto the racking. Um, and so we're demoing that, you know, I, I expect us to go you know, between now and next year to continue to increase the number of projects that we're doing that on. And then we're getting better. I mean, we're getting results every day saying that, you know, day one, if that was the install rate that you were getting, you would never be able to keep going. But now we're saying, yeah, it's getting close to what we would expect out of a, you know, a three person crew. To, I think next year, you know, we'll probably be able to, to beat it pretty handily. Chris Dunbar, this was this was great to get some insights uh, from the, the EPC segment that we don't, at least in this venue of, of Factor, this touch on nearly enough. So I appreciate you for taking the time to, to dive into some of these topics. Yeah, John, good to uh, good to see you. And thanks for representing Asheville so well. Thanks again to Chris Dunbar for joining the podcast. Factor This is a production of Renewable Energy World and Clarion Energy. Join us every Monday as we break down solar's biggest stories with industry leaders who actually move the needle. And please leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Factor This from Renewable Energy World. Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.